On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. Let's, let's pray. Father, these words were written millennia ago. And God, it is easy as time passes for us to find more and more difficulty in understanding them. How can we? Only if your spirit moves. So we pray that your spirit would move. We pray that you would illuminate the text, illuminate Jesus in our hearts. God, that, that we might see and believe and follow and be changed. And may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are coming quickly to the end of our journey through Mark. Sixteen chapters, we're more than halfway, or we will be more than halfway done with chapter 14. You may not realize this, and I'm going to use this as a little bit of an announcement and an encouragement. And I only say you may not realize this because of the way that time seems to move and how quickly months go by, because it's the last day of March. 2019, right? Like time just moves. Um, and we are actually only three Sundays away from Easter. Uh, and that's, that's huge, right? It's the big one. It's, it's when we celebrate again and in, in, in fullness the resurrection of Jesus. And what's interesting is despite what you may think, uh, people are actually more likely, more inclined, actually that's exactly what you would think, uh, to, to visit and to, to see what might happen and what's going on at Easter. And so if you have friends or family in the, in the, in the area, 
uh, let's celebrate Easter together. Uh, I, I say that, but at the same time, as we look in Mark, we are flying now to the cross. Uh, we, we are at the Last Supper, the Lord's table. Uh, and each week, we come together as a family and we celebrate the Lord's table. And uh, one of us stands behind here and breaks the bread and recites the words that Jesus spoke. This is my body and holds up the cup and says, this is my blood. And each week we remember what Jesus said. And, and this week we get a long form entrance to this table, introduction to this table. We get to see what's happening in the context of this story, what Mark is doing. And so our story, if you recall, Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's journeyed there. Uh, we know in one very real sense he's come there uh, to be betrayed to be crucified. He keeps saying it over and over again. I'm going to die. The Son of Man must be handed over. The Son of Man must die and be buried, be risen again. And now we get a little bit more insight. See, these travels that Jesus makes, though they are intentional to his ministry, they are not unusual for the people of his day, especially for uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews of the day, the Jewish folks in, in, in that time, uh, many would travel to Jerusalem. It would be a pilgrimage of sorts in preparation and to get ready for and to observe Passover. And that's exactly what Mark says is happening. On the first day of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover. And so right away, I want us to just understand that <clears throat> this last meal, according to Mark, and we see the same thing in Matthew and in Luke as well. Uh, John doesn't emphasize it the same way. John has a, a different theological objective, even though he doesn't have a different theological understanding of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke set the scene for this meal as a Passover meal, as the first meal that they would take in observance of Passover. And so what happens here is that Mark is describing and preparing us for what type of king Jesus will be. We've titled this series, and as we've walked through Mark, we, we've recognized that this is a story of the suffering king. And each week, if you recall, we've talked about how Mark explains and shows what type of king Jesus is, why he's worth following, why he's worth trusting. And he also says that this is the road, this is the path that the king takes. His path leads him from Nazareth all the way to the cross. And he's crowned king on the cross. We'll get to celebrate that and consider that and reflect somberly on that on Good Friday when we gather together. He's crowned king, and it's an ironic crowning because instead of uh, the, the pomp and circumstance and fanfare that you would expect that would befit the crowning of a king, it's mocks and jeers. And he's crowned not with gold or with, with a, a fine crown, but instead a crown of thorns. And instead of, 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 the, uh, of his, his praise being lauded and him being bowed down to, 
he is lifted up so that he might die. This is an ironic crowning of king, and we said that in the very first uh, week of Mark, and here we are moving towards it. But Mark is giving us now more shape to what that suffering looks like. And at this point, we begin to see that Jesus... I was tempted to title it this, and I I guess we can, um, but we'll have to unpack it. Jesus is our paschal king, our paschal king. And so for those of you who perhaps haven't grown up in a a tradition or in a denomination where that's a phrase that's used, paschal just means referring to the Passover. He's our Passover king. He is our king set apart for the Passover. And this is what we're beginning to see in Mark. All of these things that Jesus has been doing has been leading him to this Passover feast. The Last Supper is a Passover meal. And and we talked with the kids about Passover just now, right? We talked about the story that leads up to it. The Passover was a feast that was remembered and is remembered still by Jewish people year after year after year where they remember the story of God delivering them from Egypt. The people of God were in captivity. They were slaves. They were in a land that was not their own. They were servants and slaves of a king that was not their own. And they were meant to be a people, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing and protection. They were meant to be the kingdom of God, and yet they were enslaved. And they prayed for deliverance. They pleaded. And one day, through Moses, God sent them deliverance. And we remember that uh, it wasn't a simple Pharaoh, let my people go, and then, yep, see ya. It was plague after plague after plague. Until the tenth plague. You remember it, right? We, we have, I think, an interesting outlook on it. And when I say interesting, I mean that it's really casual for what it is. The Passover story is horrific. It's a story about wrath and grace all together. And if we look at it from the side of the delivered, which we ought to, which is the the viewpoint of the scriptures, we see it as this remarkable day where God demonstrates his power over everyone. But it is not a casual story. God says to the people, I am going to kill the firstborn in all land. And if you want to be delivered, if you want this wrath and judgment to be passed over, or to pass over you, then you have to sacrifice a pure lamb. And he gave them uh, instructions for what to do with the lamb. And Alicia read those uh, earlier and, and what to do with the blood and how to sacrifice it and where to put it on your house and when to eat and how to eat it and how to cook it and what to do. And if they follow, if you follow these instructions exactly, and if those who are in your household follow these instructions Exactly, the wrath of God will pass over you, but if not, there will be death. And the story is that there was death, and lots of it. 
Can you imagine the horror? It should, I would say it should, in, it should bring out sorrow and tears and fear when you would hear this story. The firstborn of every household, of all the creatures, dead. Dead. And God's people are delivered. See, this is not a pretty picture of God. Like, this isn't the picture of God that we would make. We would have God be a deliverer, but perhaps our God would, would send his person to sit down with Pharaoh, and they would talk about, you know, human rights and, and how they're uh, intrinsic and that everyone is born with rights and slavery isn't good, and maybe we can have some sort of emancipation and we can live in harmony together, we can have some sort of reparations, and, and we can just work together and nobody needs to die. That's, that's maybe our story. Or maybe Moses becomes like Harriet Tubman, and there's an underground railroad of sorts, and he comes and he leads the people out of Egypt and around. That's not what happened. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions perhaps, died in an instant, in a night. And sometimes I think when we come to this table or when we think about Passover or when we consider the grace of God, we are not struck with a sense of the might and the fearfulness of the wrath of God. But God didn't want that for his people. And so after he passed over, their houses after he delivered them. He instituted this meal that year after year they would take time to remember the wrath and the grace and the deliverance of God. And so Jesus has come now with his disciples and it's time for them to once again celebrate the Passover and they need a place to do it. This isn't their home. They've got to find a place. And so the disciples are thinking logistically and they say, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we do this? Do you want us to go find something? We'll set it up. Jesus, don't worry. You just come and do what the rabbi does uh, and we'll, we'll get that set up. And Jesus, I love it. Jesus says, actually, there's already a place set up for us. Just go to this person and all the provisions are there. You just have to sort of order it for us. And so they go to eat this Passover meal. And there are certain things that would happen at a Passover meal. There were elements that were always present. There was the lamb that was sacrificed each year and cooked according to tradition. There were the bitter herbs and spices. There was the unleavened bread. There was the wine, the cup. And the same routine and ritual happened year after year. And regardless of what home you were in, if you had neighbors who were too poor to, to, to afford these things, you would bring them into your home. Your family would be there. It would be people who were, who were Jewish and who believed in God and who, understand, who understood that this Passover meal was for them specifically. 
Who was at the table mattered. There was a patriarch of the family at the table, and they had a role. They would explain each of the elements as it was taken. There were the children, and they had a role, and there were, there were songs for them, and there was, there, were, there was the whole family, and who was there mattered, and no one who shouldn't be there wasn't there, or was there. Let me say that again. No one who shouldn't have been there was there. Who was at the table mattered. And so now we come to this scene, and if we think about this exclusively in Christian communion, Christian Lord's Supper terms, we don't explore all of those things to the extent that we should. You see, this was a ritual meal, and so who was at the table matters. And this is interesting, because who's at the table? It's Jesus and his followers, but who is among them? We see later in the story, what does Jesus say? One of you will betray me. It's the one who is taking this meal and dipping this bread and this wine with me. The betrayer was there. Mark doesn't give us this detail, but we know the story. right? In Mark's, in Mark's account, it's next week that we get to talk about Jesus telling Peter that he's going to deny him. right? But Peter is there. Peter, who history and, and the Holy Spirit changes and and, and we see, or I should say, the Holy Spirit changes and history vindicates. But Peter, who would deny Jesus vehemently three times in short order, was there. There were scared, tired followers of Jesus, and even one who they thought was a follower, but who turned out to be, as the scriptures say, the devil himself. This table is surrounded by the least likely of people. They're not related by blood. There are a couple of them who are. But this table includes people who are zealots and people who are tax collectors. They wouldn't have liked each other. And people who were fishermen and people uh, who... It was this weird, broad, diverse group of people. And they were all invited to the table of Christ to eat. And Christ, the rabbi, Christ, the patriarch of the family, even though in all likelihood he was not the oldest, begins to do what happened meal after meal, year after year. He takes an element and he holds it up and he explains what it means and its significance. So you might imagine the father of a family taking the bread and saying, the Lord told God's people in Egypt to make unleavened bread to eat. And the fact that it was unleavened meant that it was, it was set apart, and the fact that it was unleavened meant that it, it, it was for, specifically sanctified for this purpose, and, and it was like us. And this bread was broken to remind us that God would fulfill every need that we have and fill us. They might have said something like that. But what does Jesus do? He takes the bread and he lifts it. Nobody is surprised. And as he breaks it, he explains it differently. He says, this is my body. Eat it. 
Now, in the Gospel of Mark, this is the first time that they've been told to do something like that. Uh, if we had been reading through Luke, we would have been like, oh, that makes sense because he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must eat my flesh and drink my blood, which, to which a lot of people understandably said, I'm good, and <laughs> walked the other way, right? They didn't see with eyes of faith. But here we get the first time where Jesus says, this bread is my body, and each year is a part of this remembrance that God passes over. Bread is broken, and ultimately body, flesh, must be broken. He's telling them that he's going to die again. My body will be broken so that you might be made whole. We say that week after week. Jesus meant it. We believe this. Christ's body was broken for us, and not only for us, it was broken in fulfillment of God's scripture, of God's word. And so he takes the element, and, and I imagine that the disciples at this point are like, all right, here we go. It's another Jesus thing, like, and, and not like how we say Jesus thing or God thing, where it's like, it's like, I don't know what's happening right now. Jesus, that's bread. But he, this is my body. Take it. Eat it. And then he takes the cup. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, I want us to remember, again, that the father of the house, that the patriarch of the house, would have taken the cup and said, this is the blood of God's covenant to his people. It reminds us that the blood of lambs was shed and painted on doorposts, and God passed over our houses and reminded us again and reminded, in fact, the whole world again that we are his People and that us, the few, the remnant, God's people, are his. It was poured out for us, a few. They would have remembered when Moses took that cup and in the same way said, this is the blood of the covenant. They would have remembered again and they would have reminded themselves that blood had to be shed. They would have reminded themselves of what the scriptures say, of what Torah says, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. They would have reminded themselves that this one was big and that this shed blood, this deliverance, meant that even though we find ourselves in, in, in an occupied state, that our God delivers. And Jesus says, Yes, this is a blood. This is blood. This is covenantal blood. But this blood is my blood. The blood, the covenant, which is poured out now, not just for some, not just for a few, but for many. And then he says something really interesting. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom. And so this <clears throat> actually forces us to look even more deeply into this practice, into Passover. 
and into the Seder, and especially in the first century. What's interesting is that either late first century or early second century, the Passover phraseology and some of the practice does change a little bit, uh, particularly because you're not traveling to Jerusalem because 70 AD, 70 AD was bad for Jerusalem and for the temple, and it wasn't there anymore. And so you didn't do that, and the practice has changed. But in this time, and, and they still do this, uh, the meal was taken in sort of four movements. And with each movement, you would drink wine. There would be the cup, and you would pour more wine in, and you would drink the cup. And each time it had different uh, <clears throat> significance. And, and the question is, which cup is Jesus taking right now? And, 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 and you may say, I don't know why that's a big deal, but it will hold significance and weight. Which cup is Jesus taking? So there were four cups, and they each had different meanings. And so in, in the first century, sort of uh, second temple Judaism, before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, all right, that's enough of your history lesson for now, right? In that moment, in, there were four cups. There was the cup of sanctification or preparation. And they would take this at the beginning of the meal along with a prayer saying, basically, God, prepare us, consecrate us for this remembrance. And then there was the second cup, the cup of deliverance or the plagues. It was called one of the two, and that's interesting, that deliverance and plagues, they were because there was no deliverance without the plagues. And so it was where they would remember the cup of God's wrath in some sense, but really the fact, the cup that God, of, of God's taking his people out of captivity and into freedom. And then there was the third cup the cup of redemption, or the cup of thanksgiving. It's called either. And they would remember that not only has God delivered them out of something, but God has delivered them into something. He's redeemed them. He has made them a people. He's given them a covenant. He's given them a law. He's delivered them out of slavery and ultimately into promise. And that was something to be thankful for. And then finally, there was the cup of consummation. And even then, that cup was looking forward to the fullness of what God would do. It was a cup of hope. And so we have these four cups, and it's important for us to remember, to consider which cup it is. And I'm not going to waste time on this. I think, and I think Scripture would, would uh, also uh, reconcile this, that it's the third cup. The third cup. The cup of, uh, of redemption or thanksgiving. And let me just explain... Biblically first, why I think that. Uh, and, and you can look in 1 Corinthians 10, if you'd like, verse 16. Actually, the whole, the whole uh, chapter is warnings from, from what has happened to Israel and about who Christians are meant to be, how they're meant to live in Christ, how they're meant to put off the things of the flesh, how they're meant to put on the things that are spiritual, in a sense. And in, in, uh, in verse 17, or sorry, 16, he says uh, <clears throat> this. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Right? As people who've been called out, who've been delivered, and as people who have been given a new way and a new life, flee idolatry. I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I am saying. The cup, the cup of thanksgiving that we take 
Is it not sharing in the blood of Christ, the bread that we take? Is it not sharing in the body of Christ? So in Paul's appeal to them to live holy lives set apart for God, he says that they take the bread, which is the body of Christ, and the cup of thanksgiving, the cup of blessing, the cup of deliverance, which is the blood of Christ. Paul himself attaches the third cup to Jesus. And what's interesting, the other reason is that, I would say that from from this text, is what Jesus says. He says, so there is one cup that they take four times, right? So when we say the four cups or the four drinkings, right? So he then says, I will not take of this cup again until I do it, on that day, new in the kingdom of God. That's only significant if if it's leaving this Passover meal incomplete. Now, if you... One more thing, and I think it will fall into place. If you remember in the very beginning, there were certain elements that were always present. One of them is actually the biggest element of them all. And as you read this, it should be surprisingly missing in the text. They're celebrating the Passover, Mark says, and yet there's no mention of the lamb. Now, Mark is telling a story. He's telling true story, but he's telling it to get us to understand things. Like, gospel, the Gospels are not just a history. They are theological narratives. They are theological histories. And so Mark is trying to teach us something theological. The Lamb isn't missing. The Lamb is Jesus. He is the Paschal Lamb, and ultimately he will be sacrificed on the cross. And when he's sacrificed, that meal, that Passover meal, his body is broken, he's he's pierced, blood and water come out, He, he is the sacrificial Passover Lamb. And what happens in that moment when he's on the cross? In mockery. When he says, I'm thirsty, I thirst, they dip a sponge in vinegar, which at the time would have been spoiled wine, but wine nonetheless. And they lift it up to him, and he drinks it. And what does he say? It is finished. Now, there are a lot of ways that we tend to interpret it is finished, right? Like my redemptive work is finished, right? My, my time on earth, right, is finished. And I think that all of those things ring true. But when we read it in this context with Mark, what Jesus is saying is the lamb has been sacrificed. The final cup has been drinking, has been drunk, drinking, wow, uh, has been drunk. And the Passover is finished. For us, the Passover is finished. Christ has done it. The sacrificial lamb has been offered. And we have deliverance in him. 
See, because Jesus takes the third cup and says, His blood, His blood is the blood of thanksgiving, the blood of redemption. And by His blood, we are redeemed. And so, week in and week out, when we come to this table, we are eating and drinking anew the blessing and the redemption of God. We don't sacrifice Christ again per se, but we remember and are fed and, and, and sated by the redemptive love of God. Jesus is the Passover feast. All of the scriptures have been moving towards him. He is the paschal king. He is the bread. He is the wine. He, he, he is the lamb. He is all of it. And in that moment when he is crucified and crowned king and exalted to death, he fulfills this meal. And so now we eat it with him, not merely in expectation, but in remembrance, week after week, time after time, that Christ's body was broken so that we might be healed and Christ's blood was shed for our redemption. In other words, we've been delivered by Christ. We have fullness of forgiveness and redemption in Christ. And just like the disciples who went to a room that was already prepared for them and a meal that was explained to them by Christ and they couldn't have done it themselves and a deliverance that was given to them by Christ, just like them, we must recognize that all we have, everything, is grace. This meal is grace. This table, this life, this new life, this Passover lamb, all of it is grace. And grace is in Christ. Let's pray and we're going to come to the table.